Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. And I'm Thierry. On this week's episode, I'm talking to Enrique Sacao, CEO at Knipe. Our listeners will know by now that Luxembourg has been an important player in the investment fund industry. Knipe is another key participant in this broad ecosystem. What can you tell us about Knipe as a company, Adrian? As you'll find out in a minute, Knipe makes sure investment funds get the right level of support at inception and throughout their life cycle. This ranges from publishing data to fund reporting as part of every fund's regulatory requirements. So pretty much everything that is happening in the background for a fund is dealt with by a global leader such as Knipe, all made in Luxembourg. But what can you tell us about your conversation with Enrique? I wanted to get Enrique on the podcast as he's been in Luxembourg for less than a year and I always find it enriching to get views from guests with a fresh perspective. Also, I wanted to get Knipe as a business on the show, which is a global leader in its field. What other topics have you talked about since Enrique joined Knipe? Yes, of course. I wanted to discuss the business in general, but more importantly, Knipe, under the leadership of Enrique, is a true champion in the diversity and inclusion topic. Hence, I was keen to get his views on how he intends to take the company to the next level. Indeed, Luxembourg as a country has still got some progress to make in that respect. In a more conservative country such as Luxembourg, it is great to see further diversity and inclusion improvements in the workplace. As you mentioned in the interview, Enrique has an Anglo-Saxon business leadership and this will help Knipe reach the next level. And now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Enrique Sacao, CEO at Knipe. Enrique, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. It's an amazing pleasure to have you here. So we've got a very established tradition here on the Luxembourg podcast. So before we discuss the, the hardcore topics, which is part of our agenda, we always like to know who we're talking to. So our audience for how much values the guest speaker that, that we've got in front, in front of us. So in your own words, how would you introduce yourself? Well, um, my name is Enrique, Enrique Sacao. I was born in Spain, but I spent most of the last 20 years in, in the UK. I went to Britain to study and then I fell in love with a local and never left until indeed last summer I came across the opportunity to join Knipe as the CEO and we packed our bags, we rented a house in London and moved to Luxembourg. I was uh, trained as a historian so I, I didn't study economics or business. I, I have a PhD in political history and then I've worked ever since I finished the PhD in financial services. I otherwise uh, have no kids, I am married, and I'm a very happy Luxembourger at the moment. Well, excellent. I can see what you said that you have a PhD um, that you took a, a, a few years back, but uh, before actually you, you decided to go for the financial industry uh, in, in general as a, as a career choice, I'm, I'm actually very intrigued to know, you know, why did you, was that actually a an active choice of yours not to, to actually stay in academia? Because I'm assuming, you know, when you do a PhD, this normally sets the scene for a longer term kind of involvement in that, in that space. But uh, what was actually the rationale behind all, all this? Yes, indeed. I mean, I, I, when, I, when I went to the UK to do my PhD, I thought that I would stay in academia. 
But the truth is that I was never very vocational in my life. You know, if at the age of 15 you had asked me what I wanted to do, I would have answered 75 different things. So it was only towards the end of the PhD when I had to decide, okay, now you're kind of late 20s, you've got to decide what to do. And even at that point, I could not commit to a life, an entire life doing the same thing. And in academia, particularly in the humanities, if you stay, you stay forever. And if you leave, you cannot go back. So that actually killed academia, which I enjoyed enormously for a number of years as a life career choice, because I thought I can't commit now to doing the same job until I retire in 40 years time. And I thought that a business career would be the way in which I could keep myself more in a world where, where change is possible. And, and the UK has a very good tradition of letting people do whatever they want, regardless of what they study. This would not have been possible in Spain and I think many other European countries. But yeah, I took the most of the opportunity, joined a graduate program at a company called Exchanging, and I've not looked back. And was there any particular reason why you chose uh, financial services? Well, I mean, I, I, I will sound a bit cheeky. I think it was the easiest route to market. So there were a number of things I considered, but there are more jobs in financial services than anywhere else. And, and, and then you start applying for graduate jobs at the usual consultancies. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. You have to make the most of the market you're in. And London is very financial services focused. I also thought, I think at, at, at the time, Adrian, that I would perhaps do it for a while and then do something else. So I thought it was a good platform from which to start. But the truth is that over the last 14 years, I have fallen in love with it. And, and I'm quite a happy uh, financial services executive. I don't know when my next move away from it, if ever, will happen. I've been more specifically, so now going back to, to Ashley Luxemburg and the company that you're, in, uh, you're actually involved in today. So to many, so many people, and we've, we've discussed that with other guests on, on this podcast, Many, many listeners know that um, Luxembourg is, a, is an extremely important player in the investment fund industry, so uh, especially in the administration, and now more and more actually for front office and so forth. But Knipe has been a very discreet player in, in actually in, in all the support of the, the life cycle of, of, uh, of investment funds. And, uh, but it's been around since 1993, I believe, and, uh, and ever since it's become more and more important. But... Uh, Still, few people know it, and uh, I always thought it was interesting to actually learn more about it. So, from your perspective, Enrique, uh, how would you describe then in Knipe and its and its mission, and how do you feel in all this? Uh, it's a, you put it very well there. I think when you say discreet, uh, because we are behind our customers, we're not there to be seen uh, making noise or gesturing widely. We are there to ensure that asset managers uh, can get to market at speed not expensively, that they are compliant from a regulatory point of view, and that we help them keep markets safe because the accuracy of the data that we handle as it is published with data vendors and when the documentation we create on behalf of asset managers is created has to be accurate for the safety of the market. And we talk about the market like some distant um, esoteric, Thing, but the market means the pensions of our parents and grandparents. It means the investments we make whenever we have some savings. So it's something that impacts us all. Um, so that's what Knipe does. We work with asset managers to ensure that from the moment a fund, which is a, 
product you can invest into is created. We help them register it. We help them create all the documents they must create for the fund to be marketable. We help them file with the regulators whatever it is that they need to file. And we ensure that the prices of these instruments are then published with the data vendors. So we're there from the beginning of the fund cycle, but as you said, discreetly behind the scenes. And we've been doing this for the last 27 years. So we are a company that's in the right part of the market with the right products and with the right customers. I'm very happy to keep it uh, good and keep it discreet, <laughs> just as you say. I like it. I will, I will copy you from now. You've given me a PR idea there. No, fair enough. I mean, uh, I mean, discreet is, I would tend to say, it's also very much like a, a well-known attribute or trait that, that you can see in Luxembourg. You know, Luxembourg, people don't like talking about too much about themselves. And, and it's, been, uh, it's been very much like a, embedded in, in the culture. But uh, generally speaking, so we know the pandemic, COVID-19, has kind of disrupted recently the, the whole world. And, and especially in the stock markets, financial markets have been highly disrupted and, and you know, shaken, shaken up and down. In terms of performance, in terms of you know where things are going, in your case, what are the the tendencies that you've seen from from a company strategy perspective, uh, looking at COVID nineteen, and how do you see things moving forward uh, today? The pandemic has been awful. It's been awful for those who suffered COVID, for the relatives of those who suffered COVID, and also for those of us who have neither suffered it nor no 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 know many people who have, because we have missed our clients, we have missed. Our colleagues on a personal level, of course, we have missed our friends and families. In terms of actual business impact, it's been very limited in financial services. There was a period of great volatility in the spring last year, but all we've seen since has been growth. The question is how we've had to adapt to working remotely, and crucially now, how do we adapt back to not working? Remotely, And Luxembourg has uh, other challenges there, which is that a very significant amount of the population that comes to work uh, to Luxembourg every day has not been coming in every day for the last year. That means uh, if that were to continue, if people were to not wish to come back or not to come back as often, this will have an impact on a number of, of areas. So one will be, of course, the hospitality industry in Luxembourg, all the restaurants, all the shops that benefit from this, from this enormous influx of frontaliers coming into the country. But the second thing has to do with the taxation issues linked to the situation. So if people who, who pay income tax in Luxembourg because they work in Luxembourg 100, 90% of the time, say, um, started to spend less than 50% of the time in Luxembourg, um, this idea of greater Luxembourg that we've discussed, in which Luxembourg benefits from the talent near the border inside France, Germany and Belgium, could be put into question. So this is one to watch for us all champions of Luxembourg. And I, I've been here nine months, but I feel very strongly about the place and we want to see Luxembourg thrive. But in terms of the, the pandemic itself, the truth is that financial services has been extremely resilient. Investments have thrived. The we, we've done well. We, 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 we don't have concerns about the last 12, year, 12 months, sorry. Uh, but I'm, as a, as a, as a, as a neo-Luxemburger, I am kind of acutely aware of some of the challenges that lie ahead for, for the country. There's another topic that's very close to my heart, is, and that's, that's the, the, the other, the second major 
part of our, of our conversation I'd like to focus on is, I mean, it kind of ties into ESG and, and our listeners will probably remember that we've had loads of conversations with experts uh, in that sense, so the environmental, social and governance issues that uh, that the world has been going through, and especially in the investment space, as we've, we've just been discussing it. But uh, in our case, so Enrique, I know you've been... Since actually you've, your impact since uh, since actually joining the Luxembourg community has been, been extremely important in the in the space of uh, inclusion and diversity, and um, I'm very keen actually to discuss the those implications uh, on, on this and how you see, uh, especially how you see things uh, evolving at the company level or at your company level. But before we we uh, discuss that even further, uh, I know you've mentioned quite numerous times on in, in different um, media outlets that uh, whenever it comes to inclusion and diversity at the in the workplace everyone should be delivered. Can you please elaborate on this? Sure, with pleasure. Thanks for bringing it up. Um, I believe that respect is not enough. Um, so you do not bring about real change by respecting people's choices. That is the very minimum. should be the uh, minimum common denominator. But because we know that we live in a diverse society, which is diverse in terms of race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, uh, neurologically diverse as well, um, we need to deliberately promote that people are open about who they are in the workplace and in in their private life because that is what's going to make the difference. I think one of the... Um, I am myself married to a man and I was born in 1979, so I grew up in the 1980s and 90s and whilst I was surrounded by respect, I was never deliberately encouraged to to maybe be more open about my choices and preferences at work. And then you're constantly on the receiving end of um, do you have a girlfriend and then you have to come out or not because you might think that there could be some kind of discrimination lurking behind and so on and so forth. So I think by being deliberate, I mean that using inclusive language deliberately so you don't you avoid uh, the, the the microaggression, as I think some parts of feminism call it. I think it's about um, explaining what it means to promote more women and hire more women in the workforce. It's about putting in your recruitment pages that you're a, a social a diversity and inclusion company and so on and so forth. So it's just about sending the message for those who may still have doubts that you're going to go all the way to support people being who they are, as long as, of course, they are as prepared to support others, because it's not that there is just a white, heteronormative patriarchy discriminating everybody else. You know, discrimination goes between all groups. Like, it's not that just the whites in the West are racist, you know, people from other races are also racist. So it's good to kind of travel in all directions, Adrian, but but you've got to be deliberate. You've got to make sure that if you want to send a message of diversity and inclusion to your teams to encourage it, you do it on purpose and that it gets heard. It's not buried in the noise of other messages that you're sending. But how do you measure this? How do you make sure that this objective or that particular objective is met? That's very hard, uh, but I, I, it's, it's more about inputs than it is about outputs for the time being. So we are relatively immature. We've started doing this in January. Uh, so what I want is activities. I want facts. I want 
that the hiring is done in a certain way. I want that the supply management is done in a certain way. And then I think we'll measure it in employee engagement, uh, which has gone up significantly over the last six months by 50%. And we will measure it, um, I think, by, by seeing how the company gets increasingly populated by more diverse people and how those people make it to the top. That is more something I, I can imagine is something that happens, you know, once once you've hired people, so they so you you make sure they've got um, employee engagement, and uh, run surveys every so often to make sure that they they feel included. I guess that's that's an important part. But whenever you you hire someone, so w- at what point do you make sure that um, upon the you know in the hiring process that you apply a an inclusion in di- and some diversity process to make sure that you know. Um, you know, it's not a bit not only based on skills, but also you, you capture all other details to actually make sure that you preserve a certain diversity within Knipe. And first of all, there is visible and invisible diversity. So uh, LGBTQ is not visible. Whether you're a man or a woman tends to be visible. Uh, racial diversity is visible. Neurodiversity is not visible. So there are a number of things we, we wish to do. Uh, to do, for example, with not with requesting applicants not to have the age on the CV, requesting applicants not to submit photos, because that will, in some ways, um, perhaps kind of lead to 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 a bias. And then, when you work with headhunters or recruiters to ensure that they present you with uh, women in the um, shortlist, for example. And you could go, in extreme cases, for women-only shortlists. Um, and that is the way the way you start changing it. It's all gradual, Adrian, so not, nothing, not, not all will happen overnight. But if you start doing three things at a time, it becomes part of the culture. And then, and then it, will, it will be who we are, which is, which is what we like. And then one day, hopefully not in the too distant future, it will not matter because we will have won this battle. But uh, we have many, many battles to fight before we, we win, I think. No, absolutely. I think uh, deliberate is definitely recorded as a as a term, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you're bringing that to not only Clyde, but also also I, I, I'm very hopeful that this was, this was also overspill into the wider culture in Luxembourg, because um, as, as you know, we are, Luxembourg is less Anglo-Saxon, less, less uh, open about talking about certain things, knowing especially that it's a highly Catholic, very... Yeah, so yeah, some 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 extent like a bit bit more conservative than other countries, but uh, definitely good change happening, and I'm very happy to be discussing it with with you today. But actually, more, now more focusing on Luxembourg because we've talked a lot about um, the inclusion diversity uh, topic. We have also a, a very um, favorable, or let's just say, a very popular question for for our guests is that uh, I mean, you've been I, I can can I call you like like still an expat? You've been here for for nine months, ten months uh, in in the country. But at your level, I mean, we've, we know how you think about diversity. But uh, uh, other than that, at the professional level, at the you know the leisure level, what are, what other things that you like the most about uh, about Luxembourg? Look, I, I I came nine months ago, and I have no intention to leave. You know, I came with everything. I packed my house and I brought it to Luxembourg. So I. Is I'm not here for expat. Sometimes feels like you're there for an assignment, and I'm here to run Knipe uh, for the foreseeable future. And the um, what I found is is a country that's very welcoming, very friendly, very pretty, and also very convenient. Um, it's it's odd to move to a new country in the middle of a pandemic. Both both my my, my husband and I are extremely sociable people. We think that had it been a normal year by now, we would know everybody. We would have gone to every concert. We would have gone to every um, 
every play and every movie. And we've not done much of that. Uh, but what we've done has been lots of fun. And this kind of fact that it's welcoming, friendly, pretty and, and convenient is both in terms of uh, personal life and and professional life. We we wish we could go for drives, we could visit the neighboring countries and, and do a bit more, but but that will all come. The sun is out, the terraces have reopened. We love it. Uh, it's a great place to be. Indeed, uh, I love it as well. It's uh, especially the, uh, the the fact that you're so close to, to so many countries and you can travel so easy. That's uh, one of the the big advantages of uh, of the Grand Duchy. But we've got a few minutes left, and um, and uh, I know uh, there's also like a handful of questions, or at least one question that I'd love to ask you, uh, that are part of our bonus part, uh, as we like to call it. When you so when you've, you've had a, a very successful career and so far so forth. Um, but uh, do you, have you got any sort of uh, particular experiences that you want to share with us? Uh, for, for instance, like you know, people that influence the way you're doing things today, and and uh, if if there are any mentors in your life that you'd like to talk about. Wow, that's a that's a bit of a tough one. So, I think, I mean, I could. How do I say this? So I don't read business books, um, and and I think that. Business is not something esoteric and separated from life. You know, it's about ensuring you have a good product that people are willing to buy from you, and that delivering the product costs less uh, than what people are paying for it, and then that you have teams that are willing to go along on the journey with you. For that, one could read every report from the Harvard Business School, which I read a fair amount of. But also, I think the the real good experiences come from. From other things, so I, 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 we had a cyber attack in November at Canai, which we dealt with very successfully, I believe, and the feedback from the customers was great. And nobody prepares you for that. Only that my first aid at work course, which I took at university fifteen years ago, um, did prepare me for it because you know they teach you in first aid um, that that you have to do A, B, C, airways breathing and circulation. So you arrive at the scene of an accident and believe me, a cyber attack is the scene of an accident and you're distracted by the blood, which is C, circulation. And you start dealing with the blood and the patient has something in the mouth that prevents them from breathing. And then you deal with the blood and the patient dies. Um, so if I remember the name of the person who taught me this at the first aid center, uh, no doubt an underpaid nurse uh, who taught me this in 2006, I would go to her and thank her for this business lesson that I was taught. Uh, similarly, I remember having a conversation with this person in business, Manuel Soto, who was a very big fish at Santander and before then at Arthur Anderson. I was at a fork in my career once and I was torn between going to a smaller company, which was FNZ, which we made very big, and going to uh, Bain Consulting at the time. And he said to me, Enrique, there are two types of business people, you know, people who enjoy coming behind the brand and people who come before the brand. And then that was another kind of small lesson. He said it and continued eating. But this changed my life because I, I had to answer the question. I thought, of course, I don't want to come because if I join Bain, which is a great company, when I put the Bain card on the table, it's about Bain's credibility. Uh, when I joined FNZ at the time, a small company in the UK, now the largest B2B wealth technology platform in Europe, we it, it was me, it was my credibility on the line, and I enjoy that. 
And I can give you an enormous list of mentors because I've been extremely lucky with mentors from all walks of life who taught me lessons that allow me to have the luck of the career that I have and of the general peace of mind with which I live my life. I was thinking, I don't know, my mom, professor, a professor of musicology from Italy, Annibale Cetrangolo, who taught me more about myself uh, than anything. And that's what you need when you go to work. You need to understand yourself and you need to focus on the fundamentals. But uh, on that note, Enrique, I, I'd like to thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk, uh, talk to me today and be part of the, the Luxembourg journey. It was a huge pleasure to, to have you on. And uh, I definitely look forward to uh, speaking to you in the near future. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, speaking more about the topics that you're passionate about and, and also certainly about Knipe as a company and as a, as a global player as we know it. Thank you for having me and thank you for your interest in Knipe, diversity and inclusion and the good work you're doing, Adrian. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Luxembourg podcast. Please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, please don't forget to visit our website, luxunplugged.com. And see you next time.